Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technology is the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Hey, give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux Advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener... Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. So good evening to you all. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. I am your host, Noah Chalaya. Happy to be here with you tonight. And we've got a heck of a show lined up for you this evening. If you are joining us over the FM uh, frequency, you are the only ones listening to us at the moment because our stream is not working at the issue or at the moment. And I am uh, <laughs> I am uh, I am just uh, working through some of those technical difficulties and, uh, of course, doing that while I'm trying to host the show as well. So hopefully you guys on the uh, on KEQQ Logos Radio, you will be patient with us just for a second while we get our Internet stream up and going. Um, but we it's I, I promise you it will be worth it because we do have a uh, uh, exciting show uh, coming right up. Uh, so a huge thank you to those of you who e- emailed in this week, uh, those of you who made Reddit posts, etc. regarding the show and uh, our request to improve the show, as mentioned last week. And I'm still taking those requests if it's something you guys have time to do. But basically, if you have uh, if you have an extra moment and you have a suggestion of how we can improve the show, go ahead and let us know. Um, you can send those to live at asknoahshow.com or even better yet, use the contact form on our Ask Noah dashboard. That's asknoahshow.com, the canonical place for all of your resources. We're going to get to uh, some of your emails. And in fact, uh, let, to that end, let's just jump right in. Dave writes in and he says, hi, I have one question. That's what they all say, right? I've always heard that routers have their own built-in firewalls, but on various podcasts I listen to people often bring up things like PFSense and other firewall setups. Now, I know I could Google this, but it might be a topic worth discussing on your show. Right now, I have a home and work network behind uh, routers, but I am not sure if I'm taking a big risk by not having a separate firewall in place. Thanks again, Dave P. Well, Dave, the answer to your question is that yes, most routers, modern routers, do in fact include firewalls. Um, a firewall is also a an appliance that you can buy separate and add into your system. That's uh, you can go either way. But the advantage of a external firewall, the advantage of what we call typically an edge device, because it sits at the edge of your network, the advantage in having a separate edge device is that. Oftentimes, they are a little bit more flexible. They're a little bit more um, configurable than what you would have just with an ordinary household router. So, for example, a very typical router is uh, the uh, WAP54G or WRT54G, whatever the uh, whatever the exact model is from Linksys. And the downside to that particular router is – or the upside is that it does have a firewall. Um, the downside is you can't do some of the more advanced uh, firewall filtering like you can with, let's say, a Microtech uh, RB750. Now, that's a commercial-grade router. It's one that we use a lot in production. The advantage of the Microtechs are that they are $35, and you can order them off of Amazon, have them primed to your house. And it runs an operating system called Router OS, which is an enterprise-grade routing operating system. And again, these do have firewalls built in. The advantage of using... The reason that I really like the Microtech as opposed to uh, some of the other more expensive devices is that Microtech does scale. You can actually get a Microtech router that is, you know, $10,000 and runs a network of many hundreds of thousands of, of users. But it is simple enough and, and that you can actually get the same operating system running in your uh, in your house. And I just got word that our internet stream is about to come back up. So if you are joining us and want to listen online, uh, we should be live now at jblive.tv. So welcome, uh, JB Live listeners, jblive.tv or jblive.fm. We're happy to have you guys here. Hopefully, uh, we've gotten all those issues worked out. Um, 
and we were just talking about uh, routers and firewalls, dedicated firewalls being a thing. If you don't, if you don't have a reason to use a separate firewall, if you don't have a reason to use an, an external edge device, as we're going to call it, um, don't worry about it. As long as you have a firewall built into your router. Now, where, uh, where you always want a firewall is you want a device that is actively blocking traffic and more importantly, logging that traffic, those attempts to access your network. Um, because without a, without a fire, any firewall in place, if you didn't have any sort of port forwarding, NAT is going to, albeit unintentionally, provide some security to you because if you're passing traffic to a public IP address and you're trying to protect a machine at a private IP address, there's nothing to really facilitate that NAT translation back into your machine um, without actually having specified some firewall rules. But uh, security, through, security through obscurity is no real security at all. Um, and so what you want is you want a device that is actively blocking those attempts and more importantly, logging those attempts so that you know that there is, in fact, an issue. Uh, thanks, Dave, for writing in. We really appreciate having you. Again, phone lines are open one eight five five four five zero 855 It's 1-855-450-6624. Uh, we have another email that came in live here right on the show. Uh, this comes in from Chris K. Chris says, hi, Noah. I've been a Linux user for some time. I do all of my work in Linux, and I moved computers and servers I own to Linux. Uh, except, oh, geez, this is, uh, except my wife's laptop. It wasn't a trust issue. It was a rationale fear of her university not accepting certain file formats and being incompatible. Enter last week. She's wrapping up her master's degree. She turns on her computer to continue her research and no windows. Not now. She says clicking, uh, clicking once more. She denies the update. An hour goes by. She leaves her computer for the ever slightest moment for a fresh drink uh, returning to see configuring updates. This may take some time. Do not shut off your computer. Now, I'm a compassionate man, so I lent her my Debian Stretch desktop to complete her work. The Windows updates continued into the night. Today, her laptop is is uh, happily running Kubuntu 17.04, another convert, another Linux success story, and another Microsoft failure, i.e. Psy. I am not able to listen today, but it seems like you love success stories involving Linux. Yes, I do. I told her that she, if she hit a wall and she was unavailable, she could reach out to the Ask Noah Show for assistance. Thanks so much for what you do, Chris, Rakai, Wes, and Joe, too. And this comes in from Chris. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to actually extend you a special, uh, a special offer. If, if your wife has any issue, especially if she's getting through her master's degree, we at the Ask Noah Show want to be a part of her every success. So, yeah, please give her that number, 1-855-450-NOAH-855-450-6624. And if she has issues that need immediate attention as it relates to her um, her master's degree, go ahead and have her give customer care a call. Ultraspeed Technologies, 1-866-280-1433. That number again, 1-866-280-1433. And I'm going to go ahead and make a note with your name on it in our ticketing system. And if she calls in, um, we're going to go ahead and assign her a technician to help her uh, for the first couple hours for free at no cost to you guys because we definitely, like I said, want to be a part of her success in switching to Linux and uh, completing her master's degree. Nobody wants to troubleshoot computers and she may not have a week to to wait to uh, till the show actually goes on the air. Now, my friend Steve Owens from Red Hat put out a ripping good read article this week on Ansible. Now, if you have no idea what Ansible is, or maybe you haven't, maybe you've heard the name, but you, it sounds like one of those, you know, super complicated things that you have no use for. Let me let you in on a little secret. Rather, let Steve let you in on a little secret with the five minute tour. Ansible is. Uh, let's see. It's it's a it's an it's a way to manage multiple workstations. It's kind of like Puppet or Chef. Um, but what Steve does that I think is particularly great in this article that he wrote for OpenSource.com is he shows you how you can get started with Ansible with some very very simple straightforward examples. And I think that is something that often gets left out. You know, especially when you look at things like Ansible. It, it's it is configurable enough and it's agile enough that you can use it for just about anything um, if you're willing to put the time in to learn how to write the YAML files but um, how, how do you get how do you even get started and uh, and so this is this is very very straightforward simple stuff things like how do you update every server under your com under your thumb with a single command like that's something we can all use and it's actually really simple to get it set up It'd take you less than five minutes in fact you could do it while you're listening live here to the ask Noah show OpenSource.com headline, How to Automate Your System Administration Tasks with Ansible. Um, 
Do you want to sharpen your Linux system administration skills? Perhaps you have some stuff running on your local LAN and you want to make it easier in your life. Where do you begin? In this article, I'll explain how to set up tooling and simplify administration with multiple machines. When it comes to remote administration tools like SaltStack, Puppet, Chef, and Ansible are a few popular options. Throughout this article, I'll focus on Ansible and explain how it can be helpful whether you have five virtual machines or a thousand. Our journey begins with basic administration of setting up multiple machines, whether they are virtual or physical. I will assume that you have an idea of what you want to achieve and some basic administration skills, or at least the ability to look up these steps will require to perform each task. I will show you how to use the tools, and it is up to you to decide what to do with them. What is Ansible? Ansible, the website explains, is a project for a radically simple IT automation engine that automates cloud provisioning, configuration, and management. Um... Ansible can be used to perform the same tasks across a defined set of servers from a centralized location. If you're familiar with Bash for, for Loops, then you'll find that Ansible operates in a very similar fashion. The difference, however, is that Ansible is, uh, is in layman's terms, um, uh, sorry, in layman's terms, generally Ansible only performs the requested action if a change will occur. As a result, for example, if you were to perform bash for loop to create a user across all of your machines, it may look like something like this. And then he gives an example of how you would create a user add for loop inside a bash. This would create my user on server A, server B, and server C. However, it would run the user add command every time the for loop was run, whether or not the user existed. Um, with Ansible, it will first check whether the user exists. If it does not, then a tool will create it. This is a simplified example, of course, but the benefits of this tool will become more clear over time. Ansible translates Ansible Playbook into commands that are run over SSH, which has several benefits when managing a Unix-like environment. First, most of all, Unix-like most Unix-like environments you are administrating will already have SSH running by default. Relying on SSH means that no agent is required to run the remote host. I want to stop right there. That has been my major turnoff to most uh, most software stacks. Anytime I have to set up and run a particular service and I have to install the agents on all these machines, that means that if I ever decide to switch using that agent, I have to go uninstall all of the, you know, every one of those computers that I've touched. Or I also risk, because I've changed some configuration or something like that, I risk that machine not working in the future. So, uh, that, so that's, that's concern number one. Um, I'll continue on here. Most most distributions of Linux have this version or greater installed by default. That is Python 2.6. Um, although running Ansible is a although running Ansible any cron job is possible by default, Ansible only runs when you tell it to. Uh, so then he walks through his first uh, tutorial or his first example is how to set up SSH key generation, and, and I will have a link in the show notes. So if you want to go follow, he walks you step by step exactly what to do. Um, I, I'm going to assume that a lot of you know how to generate SSH keys, and like I said, if you don't, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Um, he says, Ansible does not require root access. However, if you choose to run a non-root user, you must configure the appropriate pseudo-permissions for the task you wish to accomplish. You'll be prompted for the root password for your servers, which will allow your SSH key to be installed on the remote host. Okay, so that's still he's going over how to generate the SSH key. All right, the installation of the Ansible package only requires that the host generate an SSH key as seen in example one. If you are running Fedora, you can issue the following command, sudo dnf install ansible, tack y. If you run CentOS, you need to configure the extra packages for the Enterprise Linux EPEL repository. That's sudo yum install EPEL-release space tack y. Then you can install Ansible with the command yum install Ansible tack y. Uh, he also gives the uh, PPA if you want to run this on Ubuntu. It runs on Ubuntu just fine. He gives a PPA that you can install and then the install command. And interestingly enough, he even gives you the uh, <laughs> he even gives you the, the the pip command if you want to install it on your silver sliver of trash known as a Macintosh or Macintosh or whatever they're calling it these days. Ansible uses the INI style or the inventory style to track when servers it may manage. By default, this file is located in Etsy slash Ansible slash hosts. In this article. I will use the Ansible inventory shown in example two to perform actions against the desired host, which has been paired. Uh, so he, so basically he shows what the host file looks like and how you can add um, all of the hosts that you wish to manage. Um, they also, he shows you how to group them up so you can have different groups of servers. 
And basically, after you've done all this, what you can do is run Ansible TAC A and then whatever command you want to run. So, for example, if you ran Ansible TAC A yum updates TAC Y, it's going to run the yum update TAC Y command across all of your servers. So if you had a thousand servers and you wanted to uh, update them all at once, especially on one network, well... Well, then you would have a, uh, a denial of service. But if uh, let's just say you were running a local repo, then you could update all of those servers at one time. Um, and he has all sorts of different things. He shows you how you can um, do pings and have the the you know results of that um, you know spit out into a file. I mean, all of these things. He really dives into this thing and shows you how you can set a lot of this stuff up. And I'm, I'm not going to go through all of it, but. Um, Suffice to say that, uh, you know, this is a really cool system, and I've played with Ansible in the past, but I, uh, I, I've, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in Ansible, and I certainly do not do a lot of, uh, a lot of server management, uh, you know, with, I've used Chef more than, uh, more than Ansible for stuff like that. I want to jump to the phones here before I leave people hanging too long. James is calling from Idaho. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Do you know enough about uh, Samba to get a guest account, uh, set up a notepad because I'm running a alpha program on another unit that doesn't have authentication capability, according to the developer at this time, and I want to test their Samba client without destroying my Samba config. Sure. Oh, you don't want to destroy the Samba config? Not really. <laughs> well, I tell you what. What if I did this? If I sent you a, if I sent you a Samba, a basic Samba config that that lets you uh, authenticate without a, without a, a password, would you be able to, to to figure out which parts of your Samba config you wish to keep and 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 just take the relevant portions? Or the other thing we could do. The other thing I you could do is like, good. I'm listening to the echo, so I'm not pretty sure which you know how that works on the phone and the radio. So I'm like waiting for you to talk. I wasn't sure exactly how to set it to the um, folder I want, which is the pre-courses default pub folder, and I figured that would work. Um, but I wasn't 100% sure what I was doing. I haven't used Samba setups in so long, I've forgotten everything I've quickly taught in class. Sure. Sure, yeah, no, that makes sense. Samba is one of those beasts, too, where uh, it is remarkably simple to get up and running, and you can spend the rest of your life trying to tweak it to run exactly how you want. Um, so I'll give you two options. There, you tell me what would work better for you. Option one is I will give you uh, a, a like a basic Samba config that has you know no authentication, just basically a guest and then full read, read and write access to the folder. The second thing I could do, if you're comfortable with it and there's no confidential information, or if you want to star that confidential information out, you could send in your Samba configuration file, and we could just make the necessary changes. What would work best for you? Um, it would, which one would take the least amount of your time when you for your end of it? Would, I could figure it. I could pretty good at figuring it out because I can point me to the right file. Uh, if you have comments that say you need to look for this line, so you know that I point, put this information in, and you should be good. Um, or if you want to actually look, because I've I'm running right now. I don't want to go back in there and go. Oh, no, it's not breaking. Fair enough. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's let's do this. Let me let me do this. Why don't I have you send an? Why don't I have you send an email in? Um, uh, head over to asknoshow.com and send an email into us, and I will uh, I'll reply with a example Samba config for uh, with with no authentication with the guest password. And then what I'll do is I will uh, if that doesn't work for you, what we'll do is we'll take you back and and maybe I'll have you reply with your Samba file, and then we can tweak it. Can I ask what the alpha software you're using that uh, what, that you're testing with? Um, it was someone wrote an alpha software for um, and for an Android tablet. It was a Samba client, and he wrote uh, he didn't have the authentication portion working. And I thought, oh, cool, let's play with that because I'm always up for anything new. And 
um, thought I'd give it a try, you know, his app, his little app a try. <laughs> but I need to get my Samba side uh, set up so it can accept, you know, basically guests and the authentication before I can try. And then that's where I was like, okay, I need to edit this file, and you know how that goes. You're like, um, okay, I've put this point over my. <laughs> Let me ask you this: uh, so uh, you're you're wanting to set the Samba share up simply to try a piece of software? Like it, it's it's one of those things that it's like, oh, I'm, this isn't going to production or anything. You're just setting it up. You're like, oh, I'm going to try this piece of software. Oh, I need a Samba share. That that kind of thing. Yeah, and then I thought if I just had a Samba share set up for one folder, one folder only, that would work great when if, if I want to attach a different machine where I didn't want to have, it may or may not have a authentication. And uh, since it would be only one folder and it's just me, myself, and no one else touching it, it should be real limited safe and all that works. Gotcha. And then I, I could just sit there and say, fine. Well, I'll tell you. Here's what I would do. Here's here, here's what I would do, James. What I would do if I were in that if I were in the, that situation, I actually, I, I, I mean, I'll I'll help you with the Samba config. We can get that set up. But if that's giving you a headache, what I would do if I wanted to get a Samba, if I wanted to get something spun up real fast and I just wanted it to work, particularly, you know, opening any sort of no authentication up to my actual computer doesn't really appeal to me. So I'll tell you what I would do if I were in your shoes. Uh, you know, you call me, ask me, you know, my opinion. So I, I, and I'm an expert on it. Um, what I would do is I'd spin up like a, either a libvirt invert manager or something with VirtualBox. And I would just run a, a, a free NAS instance and, um, and create yourself a little public, uh, Samba folder and, and store it on there. And then you can spin that puppy up and, and spin it down when you're not using it. I'm not crazy about having a, a, a folder, even if it is, you know, even if you, you know, put red letters in it and all that jazz and say, this is the public folder and, Whatever I, it's, I don't know. It wouldn't be my favorite thing to do. So that's that may be what I'll do. But if you want, you head over to asknoahshow.com, click on the contact link, and we'll definitely help you out. Eric writes in, "Hi, hey Noah, celebrating my son's first birthday tonight, so I can't join you. Well, happy birthday to your son, Eric. Wish him a happy birthday from us at the Ask Noah Show. As you know, I've been working at an IT consulting startup here in Kansas City, and my list of clients grows every day. One thing has become obvious: I'm going to need hardware." Using Dell laptop, using a Dell laptop as an example, what's the best way to get a good price? At some point, I do have to become a Dell reseller. Amazon buy pl- a Dell reseller. Amazon buy plenty of units during a sale, and then charge a couple of percent to the client to make money back on the transaction. Thanks for all you're doing. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. First of all, where do you buy cheap hardware? Well, the truth, Eric, is that the profit margins on laptops are next to nothing. When you buy a laptop at Best Buy, buddy, you are getting a deal. They sell those things. Have you ever noticed this? When you walk into Best Buy, they will sell you an extended warranty on a pencil. And you know why? Because that's where they make all their money. They make all their money off of financing and extended warranties. They don't make any of their money off the electronics that they sell. So it's actually a good buy. I mean, you are getting those things darn close to cost. And the thing is, Best Buy Corporation is buying hundreds of thousands of them, and your purchasing power is, you know, 10 at a time, 5 at a time, something like that. So all that to say is if you want the best deal is go to the – go you know, shop the big store. Shop – Amazon's not a bad place either. Amazon, you know, they – again, they, they sell those things darn near at cost or sometimes I even suspect they sell them below cost. They're so cheap. Uh, that That's not a bad place to buy them. Now, here's the part of your, uh, your email that concerns me. You say um, – uh, you need to become a Dell reseller. We well, don't need to be, but you could. And you don't. As far as how many do you need to sell? Dell's partner program does not require you to. I mean, you could sell one computer a year and be a Dell. You could sell zero computers a year. As far as I know, there's no minimum sales requirement for the Dell partner program. So I would sign up for that. Um, and you know they'll give you a discount. It's not going to be huge. You might still find that you get better pricing off of Best Buy and Amazon. Again, purchasing power. But here's the part of your email that concerns me. You said that um, you know wait on Amazon until you find a sale and then buy a bunch of them. Don't do that uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the value in computers drop like a rock. I mean, you know, we talk about the, the value of cars going downhill. I mean, you know, it's it's a race to the bottom with computers. You can buy a, a $2,000 laptop, and b- before you get it into your trunk, it's already dropped 50% in value. So 
And the problem is they, they got new machines coming out every five minutes. There's new features coming out every five minutes. And so if you sit on stock for even six to eight months, you're out of date and you're going to have a hard time sell, moving those machines. So I would not hold a stock in machines. We at Alta Speed, we sell a lot of computers. I don't stock any of them. Um, and I've had a couple people ask and they said, you know, could you keep a couple cold shelf, you know, a couple on cold shelf so in case we need to buy them? No, I can't. Uh, it's going to be three to five business days for us to get those in. Uh, and that's just the way we do business. Um, you know, the other thing, but, but anyway, so I would not stock, uh, machines. I would, uh, I would sell them. And the chat room's telling me, you know, Intel is, 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 uh, is staging, you know, the processors. That, that's true. But even, you know, I'll, I'll, let's go back to Dell, for example. At the same time that we were quoting 3020 Optiplexes out, the, whatever it was, the 3040, I think that was replaced them, were already available on the website. And that's before we, that, this is like within like five days of we quoted out a machine and they were buying a machine, you know, the next model came out literally in that week. Now, granted, that's not, a, that's not going to happen every week, but they move quickly. Um, you know, manufacturers do. And even small things, even if you don't necessarily get a new chipset, you know, especially right now with USB-C becoming a thing, more and more manufacturers are including those in their computers. So I'm not a huge proponent of, of stocking up on, on, well, any hardware really, but especially laptops. And one thing that we've done, and I'm not embarrassed to admit this, uh, at AltaSpeed, we used to have a, a pretty decent stock of other things like access points, routers, stuff like that. A lot of that has been pared down. The things that are urgent, and I, actually, interestingly enough, access points and routers would both be considered urgent. We still stock those. But for the most part, all, most of our stock, I, uh, I, I use the, uh, this, this service that is, uh, a hundred and some dollars a year, and the there's a, a warehouse that has every IT part known to man, and they stock it for me, and then they ship it to me with free two-day shipping. It's called Amazon Prime. <laughs> so that's actually what we've done at AltaSpeed. There's a lot of the things that we sell, the day-to-day stuff, uh, we just prime it, and uh, and then we mark it up uh, 30%, and, and we sell it. Um, in fact, if you order something off of our site, uh, and you know, a lot of times that stuff is stocked uh, by Amazon, and and we just facilitate it. Now you're getting something for your for for the markup, right? Because you're getting our name behind it. So you know, you buy a you know the Linux podcast setup. I think is like 250 bucks. Now you might be able to save yourself a couple dollars, and you order that thing on Amazon. But when you got trouble hooking that puppy up, then you're going to have to call us and pay 75 bucks an hour. Now if you buy the system from us, and you call and say, hey, I ordered the system. I'm having an issue with it. You call customer. 866-280-1433, and they're going to help you with that. And the same is true, of course, with uh, computers. Had a clinic just a couple weeks ago, bought a couple machines for us, and you know we spent the day out there showing them how to uh, how to get them set up and how to get them hooked up. And as it turned out, one of the uh, displays were, were were damaged, and so we took care of the uh, RMA process and all that stuff. So you're, you're getting something for your money. But that's what I would do. I would not stock machines, and I would. Uh, I take them straight uh, straight from the internet. Again, phone lines are open, one eight five five four five zero NOAA. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four or live at asknoahshow.com. Got another email that this is popular, these live emails. Uh, email comes in this is from Adrian. Adrian says, Hi Noah, and thanks for all the great content you provide. I have a question about the lack of Linux being used in schools. I should point out I'm writing in the UK, so this may be different in the US. Recently, a family friend approached me asking to install Windows on their laptop because the laptop is relatively old. I installed Ubuntu. Since I cannot run Windows 10, this means I'm going to have to find an old copy. Uh, this, this means I'm going to have to find an old copy of Windows 7 or 8 to install on it, despite the fact it will not run well. I'm confused. Adrian, why did we install Ubuntu and then go back to look for Windows 7 or 8? Installing Windows on it is not what bothers me, though. What bothers me is that the reason they gave for wanting to do so, they said the school needed Windows because the, so- oh, I see. Because the software is used in their school. This is perhaps understandable and not something that can easily be changed. What can we do to, ins- uh, to encourage the use of Linux in schools? Well, uh, Adrian, here's the thing. First off, uh, I think that you're going to see a lot of schools are naturally gravitating towards uh, Linux on laptops, and not necessarily because they have had some sort of epiphany, but because Google is actually heavily subsidizing it. So Google Apps or G Suite, they offer that completely for free for schools, and they actually have a highly discounted rate of their already subsidized hardware if they want to put Chromebooks in schools. Um, so my son, for example, has a Chromebook. 
at his school. And um, I, that's only going to become more, more prolific. And nice, the, the, the brilliant strategy at Google, really it is, brilliant marketing strategy on their part is once those students graduate and they go into the workforce and their boss says, okay, well, we're going to need you to do X, Y, Z. And they're going to say, well, you know what? I actually know how to do all of those things, but I know how to do it in GDocs. Oh, okay, well, how much is that going to cost us? Well, as it turns out, I can create a Gmail for free, and I can I can use it for absolute, you know, absolutely free. Okay, well, we want to do some more advanced things, like we want uh, you know unlimited storage and and uh, and you know and all you know some other you know email and stuff, calendaring, all that other stuff. Okay, well, it turns out you know for five dollars per user per month, they actually have a business suite, and and you know you can actually do that. So that that's you know that's a real interesting you know approach on google's end and the great thing is of course it's natively compatible on linux because it just runs inside of a web browser now the nice the, the, the as far as things that you can do to encourage um you know the the use of linux in schools one of the things that i am actually working on getting up and running here in grand forks north dakota is let me see if I got the website here. I do. I do. Give me one second. I feel so unprepared. But it was a live email, so you know what am I to do? Um, but there is a there is a program, and basically what this program does is it, it it's an entire curriculum for kids to get involved in computing. And you basically take it to the school system and you say, here I have this curriculum, and I'd like to teach it to these kids. It's designed with the use of Raspberry Pis in mind, so you can basically buy you know, five or 10 quote unquote workstations and put them together. Now, ah, here it is. It is called codeclubworld.org. Um, and it's a, it's a volunteer, uh, code club for children aged nine to 13. And one of the things that I had, I had thought about doing this, uh, a year ago or so for my, my son. And, uh, the problem I ran into is I was going to use Raspberry Pis. Now the Pis are cheap. They're 35 bucks. The problem is the displays are like a hundred and some dollars. So, I mean, it's, you know, you're looking, by the time you're done with a display and the Pi and the mouse and the monitor and the power supply, I mean, you're, I'm looking at a significant ca- a capital investment. And I know the way I was as a kid, I always like free things. So I can't help uh, being a tech per- person in tech. I have to give the computers to the kids when I'm done. Can't really afford to do that if I'm spending two, three hundred dollars per machine. But the Pinebook has come out, which is an ARM based laptop that's selling for, I think the, the, the 11 inch version sells for like 85 bucks or something like that. Now that is something that I can afford to, you know, buy five or 10 of these things and hold this code club after school and just tell the kids, if you attend all, you know, 16 weeks or however long the thing is, then we just give you the machine when you leave. What kid isn't going to stick around for that? And they're learning something too. So I think ways like that are ways that you can get involved. And of course, if you wanted to get involved and you didn't have the capital to provide machines, you could always ask the school if, you know, you could live boot five or 10 machines or something like that, or bring in five or 10 USB sticks, boot them off of that. That should work too. Adam is calling from Texas. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, Noah. Well, it's a tremendous honor to speak with you. You too, sir. Uh, How can we help? I just gotta say that, <laughs> hey, I just want to say that uh, you and Chris and the crew over there at JB have uh, converted me to Linux. Uh, I've been successfully running some Fedora machines, Ubuntu machines. Um, you guys have almost completely weaned me from Windows but I want to run Google or sorry Trimble SketchUp, and it's not available for Linux. Um, so what I'm trying to do is set up a VM of some kind on my Fedora 25 host that will mm-hmm. run Windows 8.1, and then allow me to run uh, to run SketchUp there. And so what I've done is I've tried uh, just putting Windows 8.1 on GNOME boxes, which you know it came up and ran, but it was super sluggish; it was barely usable at all. Um, I've also tried uh, Wine, which came up as Play on Linux, uh, which fiddled with that for a weekend or so. Um, couldn't get too far with that. I couldn't even actually get uh, SketchUp to run at all. Um, I tried VMware Workstation, uh, which gave me some problems around uh, DevL packages and things. I, I scoured the forums and tried a few things there, but couldn't get VMware to run either. Uh, and so now I'm with Vert uh, Manager, and I can get Windows 8.1 to run, uh, but it's it's um, it's just I can tell that the mouse is very sluggish. Uh, it doesn't seem to be very responsive, and it doesn't allow hardware virtualization, or sorry, um, uh, hardware acceleration for the graphics card. So uh, SketchUp won't run at all there. So I'm just wondering if you could offer um, 
any suggestions as far as uh, settings I could run in Vert Manager or other you know tweaks I can try to get this running a little bit more stably? Um, sure. The other thing is that my hardware is really um, I'm running an AMD uh, quad core uh, E2 uh, laptop here, and I'm just kind of worried maybe my hardware is not actually up to the job in the end. Yeah, so the laptop hard the laptop hardware concern that could definitely be a thing, um, and that's definitely something you know you I mean it's either it works or it doesn't, right? Now there's a couple things that come into mind the way that you could crack this nut. The first way is something called GPU pass through, which basically takes the the graphical unit of your computer and passes it directly through to a guest. Now on a laptop, I've had some interesting issues with this because what's happened a couple of times when I try to do GPU pass on a laptop is it captures the entire display device and I have no way left to control the computer. <laughs> so I'm stuck inside of that VM. So that, the, the, so the, the, that's one concern. Um, the, 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 uh, with the NVIDIA stuff, um, the, the newer, later NVIDIA stuff, it actually offers you the ability to run both the, you can choose, I want to run the Intel or the NVIDIA. So you could, you could turn the NVIDIA off, pass that through to the guest. Um, for what, if I was in your, if I was in your shoes, what I would try doing when you use Vert Manager, by default, the way that it controls the screen is it, it scrapes, it's, it's what we call screen scraper. It basically takes a picture of the screen, then passes it through. It's using VNC to do that. And VNC, well, remarkable technology for 1995 is not really that performant. And so what I would try doing is utilizing something called RDP, which is Microsoft's remote desktop protocol. And what RDP will do is it will allow you to connect. You can run the virtual machine invert manager, and then you could use RDP in a software like uh, Remina, R-E-M-M-I-N-A. It's an RDP viewer. And I have seen when I use an RDP client, uh, I feel like I am on native metal. Um, and I have played with uh, Remina, uh, you know, obviously Microsoft's native RDP client, uh, the N Computing uh, L300. All of those you utilize RDP, and it works very, very well. Now, obviously, like as you correctly pointed out, if the machine doesn't have the horsepower to run the software to begin with, it ain't going to matter how how great the connection from my host machine, controlling machine, out to my actual, you know, the, the machine that's actually running the software. It ain't going to matter because the, the the software is actually lagging there. Here's something else you could do. You could rent a, uh, and I don't know, I don't know what your budget is for this, but you could rent a, um, a, like a machine from a company called, uh, let me see if I have it here. I do. Hostedwinds.com. Hosted, W-I-N-D-S.com. And I'll have a link for you in the show notes. But basically what they do is they rent, um, uh, Windows machines. And, uh, so you could buy, you could rent them. <clears throat> it's not very expensive. It's, you know, 10, 15 bucks a month, something like that. And you could rent a more beefy machine and then, and then, you know, again, use RDP remote into it, that kind of thing. Um, that's one way you could do it. The other thing is, have, you said you tried VirtualBox. One thing I have had issues with VirtualBox is specifically with Windows 8, and this isn't no longer an issue with Windows 10, is I've had an issue with some weird performance things if, the the CPU architecture is is weird. There's like different ways you can emulate the CPU, and I've I've I, I couldn't tell you exactly what it is because I just I just tweak different things until it works. Um, but I've had some success uh, getting VirtualBox to be to, to work a little better, specifically with Windows 8 doing that. Any of that helpful to you? So VirtualBox or VMware Workstation? Uh, VirtualBox. I've not. I, I've. It's been a long time since I've used VMware VMware Workstation. Okay. Okay. See, the only reason that I really wanted to try VMware Workstation is because I'd read somewhere that they have better native support for the AMD chip virtualization. Um, and that's why I was kind of questioning my whole hardware. Mm. The, the laptop's not too bad. It's got 16 gig of RAM. It's got a nice Evo SSD. Um, the processor, I'd say, is its weak point. Um, but that's why I thought, hey, if I could get VMware Workstation running with that native AMD support, maybe that would get me over the <laughs> over the edge. Um, yeah. What you were saying, you know, earlier was you know about you know running essentially an RDP session or VNC. I did not realize that I was actually viewing the VM over an RDP session, and that may be why the graphics just look slightly clunky uh, right off the bat. So I've used that stuff at work, at, you know, RDP and things, and it's not like you're sitting there on bare metal, as you say. It, 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 you can notice a little bit of kind of down-tuned sort of performance and response um 
So I use VMware at work for a, a Windows host and a Windows guest. And the, the Windows guest, it looks, you know, dead, you know, the same in every regard. And it's, you know, really fast. So that's kind of what I was getting at. And if you're saying, you know, it's going to look like a remote desktop session anyways, would my intention to run something like SketchUp really, am I just really barking up the wrong tree anyways to do like a high graphical, you know, kind of a demand? <laughs> I would say, you know, I honestly, uh, I would tell you, you no. I would honestly, like yeah, I would honestly tell you no. I, I, I have, in fact, so Chris DeLuca, he was a guest with me last week, and he manages a, a school district in West Virginia, and uh, him and I were, we were, uh, we were doing all sorts of crazy things, things that we have no business doing, to be honest with you, but, uh, and, and Chris was trying to get, he has a client that he wants to get some remote video to play. And so he is actually doing like uh, live video stuff uh, over RDP. And, and it, granted, we are, it does not work terribly well on a, on a $29 okay. Raspberry Pi, but, but the, the protocol is there and supports it. It did work fine when you used a regular RDP client. So yeah, I would go ahead and say, yes, you can absolutely do um, very intensive, uh, very, you know, even latency specific things um, without any problems. Now, I will tell you, the chat room has given me a hard time for recommending VirtualBox to you. They're saying stay away from VirtualBox. It's it's a great way just to get something set up and running, but uh, you know use uh, KVM with with KMU. So so I guess you know if and, and that's how I would do it if I were you. And for a couple of reasons, the one is um, because uh, just the libvirt is just a great hypervisor. But the second thing is that really appealing to me, and it would be actually really useful if I was doing something like SketchUp. Is you can close that RDP connection. Right. And because that server is running in the background, the machine stays up and running. The software stays up and running. So it's out of your workspace, out of your mind. It, it's occupying some of your resources. But at any point in time, you can dial that RDP session back up and boom, now you're back in the machine. And I don't know if this will apply to you, but I have done this time and time again, and it's been fantastic, is oftentimes I will take a machine and I'll move my the, the VMs that I use commonly over to my laptop and I'll use them there. And then I'll just take that QCOW image and dump it back to my virtual host back in my house. And now it's, I can still access it if I need to grab something off of it, but it's not eating all the resources off my laptop. It's not right there. And you can, you know, very, very easily move those images back and forth from one machine to another. So, you know, if you bought a, you know, a more powerful desktop or something like that, all you'd have to do with your same, you know, SketchUp setup, all your project files, all, you know, you have all the settings the way you like them. You just copy that QCUF2 file to your more powerful machine and change the IP address inside of uh, Remina. And now you're, you're back in business. Right on. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Okay. Well, this is definitely encouraging, Noah. I appreciate that. Um, and I, I, the one thing I wrote in my notes here is to try this GPU pass-through. I had misunderstood that as for a desktop system with more than one physical graphics card. So if you're saying I can maybe, you know, see what I can, you can scratch together with that, that might be something I'll, I'll look into next. But yeah, the they're saying this is all doable. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would give it. I'd give really the, the, the Yeah, I would give Libvirt a, a chance first. I, you know, the, the reality is that the um, the uh, the GPU pass through. Uh, you know, per, buckle up for a ride because it can be it can be a little rough. Um, but I did have it working on my uh, Oryx, so I know it is possible to do it on a laptop. I just uh, it it just it, it's not it's not you know it's not uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world. But we definitely thank you for the call. Thanks for being a part of the Ask Noah show. And uh, can we call back? Let me know how that works because I'm you know I'd be really interested. And uh, you know, the chat room is also saying that because you have an AMD laptop, you may in fact have two GPUs inside of the laptop. So you you might be better situated than you think to get this done. But I would I'll make you a bet if your compare if if you're thinking it might work, but as for latency. You know, when you were running uh, in Vert Manager, Vert Manager is really, is really designed just to give you BIOS level access to, you know, to facilitate making some change, something like that. Um, and so, uh, do, 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 yep, there we go. And Rakai is saying the same thing. He's saying you need two graphics card, but any decently powerful laptop has two GPUs. They have the CPU graphics and the dedicated graphics, which is, yeah, and I've seen that. And there's actually a, our, our producer, Ben, just Ben, has a uh, tool that he really likes for switching between the uh, native graphics and the NVIDIA. I'll see if I can grab that from, throw it in the show notes before we get out of here. But, uh, that's a really interesting question. Thanks a lot for, uh, for writing in and asking that. Um, Phone lines are open, one eight five five four five zero noah That's 855-450-6624, or live at asknoahshow.com. Uh, appreciate all of you guys who are joining us. Um, so, 
Yeah, I, it's, it's, I, you know, it's funny. I could have done a whole other episode on Libvirt and uh, and virtual machines. In fact, I'm living it. I went to. I'm actually. I'm. Uh, I'm working with the client, um, and we have a virtual host that we have uh, been working on, and uh, went to put that into production. And turns out uh, there's a card. The, the RAID card in it has a lithium ion battery that is bloated and has destroyed itself. And when that happens, apparently, turns out the computer doesn't boot. Uh, and I didn't even know those RAID cards had batteries. I still don't really understand the purpose of said battery. I'm supposed to store some kind of configuration because God knows that, you know, flash storage is so expensive these days that, you know, to store an 8 megabyte file would be, you know, ridiculous. But um, be that as it may, I, I could do a whole other episode. Uh, yeah, I'm having so much fun. And like I said, I have a partner in crime, Chris DeLuca, has helped me kind of work through some of those issues. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the thing with uh, VirtualBox is we don't uh, give VirtualBox enough love, but VirtualBox is one of those machines that, or one of those software stacks that is just insanely useful for just, I want to get something going, I want to get something done. And the thing that VirtualBox does that, uh, you know, LibVirt doesn't do, you know, unless you're using, unless you pair it with something like RDP, is VirtualBox will give you, you know, a very native feeling performance, uh, full screen with the guest editions. It does things like USB pass through. It does things like, um, if, you know, file sharing and redirection. All that stuff is, you know, is capable. You can do that right inside of VirtualBox. And to answer the chat room's question, why am I using hardware RAID? Because if you're familiar with the Perk 710 controllers, there is a drive chassis on the front of the server. You put all the servers into the drive chassis and then, and then you, uh, you, you configure the RAID controller to give it some sort of RAID. Now, you, the, you, there's no way to bypass that RAID controller. The best that you can do is put them all inside of the, uh, you can put them all inside of uh, their own RAID 0, so to speak, and then you could kind of expose the rest. But you're still going through that RAID controller, which stamps out certain things like FreeNAS because FreeNAS wants to actually be able to talk you know, directly to the drive. Peter is calling from London. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Noah, what a great pleasure to speak to you. I've been listening to the program since you started it. Um, and JBC a couple of years before then. Uh, my question is this. Uh, how, what uh, sort of direction in development does Linux have to go in order to be appealing to those people that use computers at home? So you can just install it, it works straight out of the box, which it does right now. But how do you convince Windows users to switch to Linux and to make it popular enough for them to be able to see the advantages behind using Linux? You know, Peter, that's a great question. And um, I think the answer to that is that users don't really care about operating systems. They don't really even care about software. Users care about tasks. They care, this is particularly true with home users. They care about when they sit down at their computer, I want to check my email. I want to watch YouTube. I want to write a document. I want to edit a video. Um, and so what you'll sure. find is, I, and I, I have, I've yet to been able to actually ever find a way to, to put this theory to a test, but I would, I would, uh, suggest to you, if you took two, uh, computers and set them side by side, and you can't use Windows because everyone's very familiar with it. So you, you find another example, but you, you put two operating systems side by side and both can accomplish the same things, albeit completely different ways. You know, the, the, the launcher menu right. is different and the, you know, whatever. The, you're not going to find a user that has a strong preference of one or the other. They're going to find one platform and they, then they stick with it. Now, the reason that we see a huge proliferation with Windows and the reason that we find it's like pulling teeth to ever get them off that because they're using Windows and they're using it work and their friends are using Windows. And so when they have a, when they have a problem, yeah. when they have an issue, there's five different people to answer that, that question. When they need a piece of software, there's five different people that have recommendations to that software, right? And so – what do we do about that? How do we fix that? Well, my answer is we as the community have something that Microsoft does, does not, and that's and that is that we care. I am you and I are genuinely passionate about technology. We're genuinely passionate about you know our owning our hardware and learning how to use it and helping other people approach the same thing. Martin Wimpress, he's on your side of the pond. He has that same kind of passion, and he wrote an entire operating system. Um, you know, well, yes, assembled yeah. an entire operating system, you know, to, to, to tackle that specific need. So when you open Ubuntu Mate, uh, you are greeted with the first time user dialogue welcome screen that walks you through how to get Chrome and Flash and all the programs that, you know, users come to expect to want out of their computer. I mean, honestly, 
you know, Peter, it is easier to set a, an Ubuntu Mate machine up for when you start with that welcome screen than it is Windows or Mac OS. I honestly believe that. I, can, I think I can defend that pretty well um, as far as users getting software on it. So I, as far as what direction do we need to take, we need to work on working with software vendors to bring more and more software over to Linux. We need to encourage projects like Electron and when project leaders decide to port their uh, code over to Electron or to build inside of Electron, we need to not discourage them. I see a lot of, uh, you know, very negative attention inside of the forums and on the internet and in the chat rooms and su- such on people who build their programs on Electron. The reality is, if we want Linux to succeed, then we need to make it very easy and very approachable to to users. And the best way to do that is take software that they already know, software that they're already comfortable with, and make it available on Linux. The best way we do that is things with like Electron, because Electron they write it once and it works on Mac, it works on PC, it or, sorry, it works on Mac, it works on uh, on Linux, and it works on Windows. And the, so it's 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 a really great advancement for everyone. Code developers have just one code base to develop. Users are presented with the exact same software no matter what platform they're using and uh, that lowers the barrier for places uh, like Linux. Does that does that help you at all? Well, yes, it's a very full answer, but you see I I've had some horrendous uh, experiences with Windows. Uh, I I used to I was using it for a period of about 20 years and just recently I was forced into a situation where I had to look for an alternative operating system, and the most uh, uh, attractive-looking one was Linux. And uh, I think most Windows users need to look at the differences in terms of robustness, reliability, speed. Um, And the great thing about it is that it's only required as a donation. Uh, So for most private users, they don't really need to worry about um, authentication or or licenses. So um, they can obviously see the benefits if they put two machines next to one another and one's running Windows, one's running Linux. They can see the obvious advantages. Um, I can leave this machine that I'm running Xubuntu on up for days and days and days. I have no trouble. Absolutely none whatsoever. There's a bit of a learning curve involved, but but I'm prepared to do that and work at the possibility of actually creating a you know a good-looking interface and all that kind of stuff, um, and uh, totally customizable as well. And I, I recently was forced into having to switch over from Lin- from Windows to Linux, and it's the best thing I ever did. And for months now, I've been um, relying on my installation of Xubuntu. To use every day and it's superb i love it but there are a great number of things that i still have to learn because i'm a relative newcomer to this um these software designers for example uh, they don't explain themselves about the use of their program many many uh, examples of that uh you need uh, much much more explanation and a lot more help uh and intuitive interfaces for those people that are still uh, you know, got to learn things about the, the, the newly chosen operating system that they use every day. Um, I, I don't know how people, well, you, you answered the question. I know why people stick with Windows because it's what they trust and what they use every day and it's what's required. But the problem is that this Linux is just such a better operating system. Uh, and I think that message has got to get, uh, come across to those people that use Windows as an alternative. Noah, when are we going to see the day when we see Linux advertised on TV? Yeah, so I, I, I tell you what, you know, I, I saw so much to follow up on. Uh, to answer your question, when are we going to see Linux advertised on TV? I think you'll see Linux advertised yeah. on TV. I think you'll see it advertised on the radio. I think you'll start seeing flyers and stuff like that when a company uh, productizes, uh, you know, it, it enough to to generate some hype behind it, right? And I think the the most notable example of that is System seventy six with their pop exclamation score underscore os. It 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 is a it is a a fantastic job on their marketing team um, with regards to generating a lot of hype, a lot of energy behind their new Pop! OS. And what you've seen is the – I just saw an article two days ago, three days ago that uh, you know local news outlets in Denver 
are not picking up on this, you know, small startup company in Denver, Colorado, that has been selling these Linux laptops and is now making their own operating system. Uh, and they featured them. And I think when yeah, you generate good. that kind of hype behind it, I think then you start to get media attention. I think if Google tomorrow started shipping real Linux computers rather than just Chromebooks, I think you would see a lot of media attention. I don't think that a software company just existing and making software, even a big company like Red Hat, you know, a couple billion dollars, um, I don't think even they, uh, if they made the best operating system in the world, is going to generate a lot of media attention because it's not productized. It's not something that some that average people can walk into the store, pay some money and walk out with and use. They have to know how to install it. Um, so when somebody productizes, it bundles the entire thing together puts it on a store shelf or does like the Dell model, you know, back in the early days where you just ordered it very much, not unlike what system 76 is doing. I think that's where you're going to see the, 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 uh, the media attention. And I encourage you, Peter, if you haven't, uh, if you, if you've just joined us in the past couple episodes, go back and listen to episode one of the Ask Noah show in the first like five to 10 minutes of the show. I actually, st- I opened the, the very first episode talking about how, you know, I'd worked in IT. I had been in all these circles. I supposedly was, I had all these certifications that told me I was supposed to know something about technology. And yet I was sat there reinstalling the operating system on my laptop every five months because it crawled, crawled down to, to a halt and I needed to be able to get work done. And uh, when I went on the internet, I found that there's actually not just one or two people that have figured this out. There's an entire community of people that were also sick of reinstalling their operating system every three to six months. And so they had built an entire other operating right. system that you could use. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. You say that you leave your computer running for days at a time. I think I've restarted my ThinkPad four or five times since April or May when I bought it. And uh, I, other than that, I never shut wow. the thing off. You know, I close the lid and I open it back up. Um and it just keeps running, and it's just as fast now as I'm using it right here on the air. It's just as fast now as the day when I installed the operating system, and I have no reason to expect it won't continue to be that quickly until I uh, end up wiping the OS off of it or upgrading the computer. And uh, that kind of dependability, that kind of reliability, obviously I spent three episodes yeah. railing on the security of Linux. That kind of security, you just can't match it in other operating systems, Mac OS or Windows included. No, you can't. Oh, you can't. That's absolutely true. Noah, it's a pleasure speaking to you. I will call back. You too, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of the Ask Noah show. We really appreciate you calling in from all the way from London and then hanging on the phone with us so long, too. That, you know, that's really something else. I, I understand that there is a, it is a toll-free number, 855-45. You know, I can't. We're, we're almost out of time. That's what they call in the uh, in the radio world a crutch. Uh, anytime I go to check notes or uh, check in on the chat room or see how many callers we have in the queue, uh, I, I just I, res, I resort to uh, to saying the phone number, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. But you can call in next week. Um, just let's see. We'll, we'll close out the program with this. Not a lot, not as much time as I was going to spend on it, but it's okay. Um, headline: Wired.com. Google Glass 2.0 is starting a second act. Uh, yes, that's Google Glass on her frames, but she's not using it to check her Facebook, dictate messages, or capture no hands video while on a roller coaster. Uh, Erickson is a 30 year old factory worker in rural Jackson. Uh, Minnesota, for her, glass is not a hip way for apps in front of her eyeballs, but a tool to be used as much as any tool, such as her power wrenches. It walks her through her shifts at Station 50 on the factory floor, where she builds motors for tractors. No one at Erickson, no one at Erickson's factory is concerned with the consumer version of glass. After an initial burst of media glory was condemned for buggies and creepiness, then ushered in the gadget version of Bardo. The original glass designers had starry-eyed vision of the masses blissfully living their lives in tandem with wrapping a frame with a tiny computer screen hovering over their eye. But the dream quickly gave way to the disillusion as early adopters found that it delivered less than it promised, and most users became the target of shunning from outsiders concerned about privacy. Within three years, the Alphabet Corporation, the parent company of Google, and its sister company, the Moonshine Factory, where do they come up with these names? A Moonshine Factory? Called X, had given up on, on glass for good... Or so people had assumed. What they didn't know was that the Alphabet was commissioning a small group to develop a version for the workplace. The team lives in Alphabet's X division, where Glass was first developed, and a passionate project of Google co-founder Sergey Brin, now the focus of making practical workplace tool that saves time and money announced today. It's called Google Enterprise Edition. Now, here's the thing. Some of you may or may not be aware that I was one of the first people to willingly strap a smartphone to my head. Uh, so-called Google Glass. And my experience with Google Glass has been nothing but positive. 
So positive, in fact, that I now divide my life into two phases, before glass and after glass. Thanks to a viewer who gave me his head unit, um, I've actually been able to keep using glass here locally in Grand Forks, but the issue is, and that's the foiling thing at the end, makes it impossible to travel with. Um, there were some shortcomings, but you had to understand, you know, that was the Explorer edition. It was a beta product, and they were very clear about that up front. In fact, so clear about it that you actually had to apply for an invite program to try it. So I don't know how people can complain about, well, it delivered less than it promised. It's a trial, people. We're trying something new. Jeez. Um, but I've never been more excited to talk about a piece of technology on the air. I mean, really, because despite what Stephen from Wired is writing, the reality is that there are moments that my kids were doing something ridiculously cute for three seconds, and you simply cannot capture that on a phone out of your pocket. And for anyone that wants to joke about privacy, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that a phone inside of your pocket with the camera sticking up violates your privacy more. And we're out of time, guys. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks to Sarah, Chris, and Rakai, or Ben and Rakai. We'll see you next week. 88.3 LPFM.